Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello, how are you? It's Daryl, and welcome to episode 65 of Cage Rage, a Nicholas Cage podcast. This is the podcast in which I, your humble host and guide, that's Daryl Edge once again, take you, the listener, on the journey to true Cage Nirvana. That is the highest, truest, most pure, real, spiritual form of being that one can achieve. And how do we get to that, you ask? Oh, it's simple, by watching all of the films of the greatest actor of this, any or every generation, the golden hog of Hollywood himself, the man they call Nicholas Cage. How are you doing? How have you been this week? Hope you've been well. Um, I'm recording this about an hour or so, two hours after having my second COVID jab. The tiny distant tremors of an arm ache. Um, I'm trying to get this recorded and sort of edited before uh, the grips of Pfizer Part 2 have me in a sweet, deep headlock and I'm tapping out for mercy. Uh, the nurse was just like, if you didn't really feel it on the first one, which I, which I didn't, to be honest. I, I was quite well, quite all right on the first one. He says, you're probably going to feel it on the second one. And that seems to be the general consensus that the second one going to fuck you up, son. Um, so, <laughs> so trying to get my affairs in order before, I am, uh, before I'm killed. Um, so this week we are moving on to um, another of the 2013 films of Nicolas Cage. And the 2013 slate, again, as I've said before, I think is a very, very underrated slate of films for Nicolas Cage. We're looking at Joe. Um, a Joe which I've said before on the podcast, I'll say again, I'll say on this episode, is one of, if not the most underrated of the Cage films. And um, the stars sort of aligned and it kind of felt appropriate, coincidental but appropriate, that this episode comes out on the same weekend that Pig is released in the UK um likewise these are both two you know low um sort of low budget indie films um that hopefully not a lot of people are going to sleep on pig it seems the pig's getting a lot of great attention in the press now hopefully unlike joe that is going to get some award attention that's going to get some nods that's going to get the right people talking about it but joe was another film that um you know a lot of people slept on this film a lot of people are still sleeping on this film it should have been talked about more than what it was um but, you know, we're just trying to do our bit to elevate that film and get more people watching it, you know. So it felt right, it felt appropriate that this episode comes out the same weekend as Pig. Uh, I'll be seeing that uh, tomorrow, the day after this uh, is recorded, this intro at least. Uh, an unfortunately small sort of rolling out for Pig in terms of it's only been shown at limited screenings, at independent cinemas. Um, I'll be journeying down to Sheffield to go and watch it at the showroom cinema myself. So it's also a great opportunity to go and support some independent cinemas as well. So really, really looking forward to this. You know, my first real Cage film on the big screen in however many years. I think the last time I saw Cage on the big screen properly would have been before the DVD run of films with Ghost Rider Spirits of Vengeance. So this is, um you know, a big moment, very big moment. So I'm very excited to say the least. So for this week's instalment of Joe, I am joined by MJ Smith, one half of the Jaws for a Minute podcast. 
joined me to talk about Joe. And um, I think, you know, this episode is really just a lot of us gushing about this film, as you will be um, if you see this film as well. So it's going to be a good one. You're going to enjoy it. As ever, let's get the admin out of the way. You can follow me on Twitter at cage underscore podcast. You can find me on Instagram at cageragepod. And you can find me on all the usual streaming services, Apple, Podchaser, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, uh, Deezer, iHeartRadio, Tuned In, Acast, the host provider, of course, and others. Um, if you've watched Joe, feel free to reach out on the Instagram again at cage underscore podcast. We'll have a chat about it. Always love talking cage. You know me, dog. But with that said, let's get into it. It's Darren Edge. It's Emily Smith. It's Joe. Duh. It's time to round off 2013 with the indie crime drama Joe. This week, Cage plays the titular Joe, an ex-con who becomes an unlikely role model to 15-year-old Gary, protecting him from his abusive, drunk father. Joining me on the journey to true Cage Nirvana this week to see if Joe is a bro or just a plain schmo, one half of Let's Jaws for a Minute podcast, MJ Smith. MJ, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Daryl. Thank you for uh, having me. I'm really, really excited to talk about this movie. Oh, well, thank you so much uh, for joining me. Um, obviously, providing my my internet holds up, very much looking forward to the <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, to the conversation. Um, so we chatted a little bit sort of off record there. I think it's been a while for both of us since we've last, um, last dipped into Joe. Um, I suppose Cage in general, though, um, it's sort of something I bring up in the intro all the time. So many people have so many different opinions on him. Um, there's no one way to pin him down. In many respects, that's the way I like my Cage to be, like indecipherable. Um, but for you, like, how do you sort of resonate with Cage? How do you find him as man, myth, actor? I feel like he is the ideal of almost any nerdy kid who would become an actor like I, I feel like I know he has this reputation of he takes projects because he owes a lot of money to the government and and that's not untrue but I think <laughs> one of the things that that endears people and me especially to him is that he clearly loves what he's doing no matter what I, I think he yeah. you know he commits a hundred percent and you can tell that he loves doing that. He loves committing. He loves doing the wig work. He loves doing the yelling. He loves doing um, just all the stuff that he's known for, all his hallmarks. And and I think it helps people connect to a performer when they see that that performer is getting a kick out of what they're doing. Oh, definitely. Um, I think that's, and that's such a, a beautiful way to sort of sum up Cage as well um, in, in, in how he's just not, um, just not traditional um, because I, I think part of the joy for me is that he just isn't interested in, uh, you, you know, like realism. The dare I say the the usual way I use that in air quotes that you should pursue acting mm-hmm. um, from an emotional level, from a, a human level. He's interested in in a way to continually push himself, um, and I think that's a generous way of saying that he'll do what he wants in a lot of respects. <laughs> <laughs> Um, obviously a lot of people just see him for the, for, like you said, for the screaming, oh, it's because money issues this and money issues that. But I see of like, just, I don't know, just a very interesting and delightfully peculiar human being. And 
I've I've said it before. Um, you know, this is kind of out of context. But if ever one day he came to my door and said, "Daryl, I need your bones," I would say, "Which one, Mister Cage?" <laughs> Which- yeah, he's just a kid in a candy store. Every time you see him on screen. Oh, absolutely! It's it, there's so much like fun and variety in his roles, and um, it's always interesting looking into the roles, especially with something like Joe as well, because this is one of the um, and obviously we'll go into the film as we get along. Joe for me is one of those films where um, you remember how good Cage is, mm-hmm. um, and. And again, this is something I've brought before. Like, I hate the fact that I might have to say to someone, I swear to God, this guy can act. Yeah. <laughs> Just give me five minutes to prove it to you. But I think this, say, along with like an adaptation, uh, obviously in Leaving Las Vegas, mm-hmm. this is one of those films that you present when you're like, yes, Nicolas Cage can act. Um, and it's it's such a, an easily missable gem Um for me, Joe is um, it's such a small release. It seems like no one saw it. Um, and you were saying sort of off record that you saw it when it came out. Do you, you sort of remember how you um, sort of came about this film the first time and your initial thoughts the first time you saw this as well? Yes, I have a very vivid memory of this, actually, because this was <laughs> one of those small release films that got released um, same day to theaters as VOD. Um, which was something that was kind of, it was more experimental when it came out instead of the norm, obviously, um, with with everything that's going on. But it it was mainly reserved for a lot of indie movies. Um, Like, uh, I I think Bubble from Steven Soderbergh was the first film that really toyed with that. It came out on VOD, DVD, and theaters the same day in 2006. Yeah. And in 2013, it was definitely not the norm but I had read a review on some site that said it was really good. And uh, my then girlfriend, who is now my wife, and I, we're, she was dog sitting for a family friend of hers and they basically gave her free reign over the pay-per-view. And I had seen Joe was one of the options for the VOD. And I said, oh, we should watch that. And she said, I hate Nicolas Cage. <laughs> and... I had to do, no, I swear he's great. I swear he can act. He, like, I'm not ironically into him or, like, I legitimately think he's a great actor and I heard really good things about this. And so she, we watched the trailer together and she was like, okay, he doesn't seem like he's doing a lot of the Nicolas Cage stuff in this movie. So I'll watch Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And that's the film that flipped her opinion on him entirely and we just recently our valentine's day date was going to a drive-in theater and seeing willie's wonderland and uh the the night before she told me hey i want to watch a crazy nicholas cage movie to get prepared for tomorrow night so we watched on the on the 11th or on the 12th we watched drive angry which neither one of us had seen and then on the 13th we went to see willie's wonderland um, oh, what a, what a double bill great. it was great. <laughs> it was such a good time but i think seeing joe you kind of lock into what he does as an actor and, and what makes him great and it kind of grounds him in a way where you can see when he does the more you know trademark nicholas cage acting 
you can see where that's coming from because all of that's kind of stripped away in Joe and he's incredible in the movie. He's so good at it. Yeah, it's, um, and again, it's, it's something I think we both touched on in, and I think in a way that both of us are kind of both cage defenders, um, to coin the term, um, that we have to, uh, testify to his attributes and his abilities to other people. <laughs> and I know I, with, with my partner, um, she'll be the first to admit she is not a Nicholas Cage fan. I think through, um, especially the last year, I have uh, softened her up a little bit, a little bit. Um, I mean, even now there are times when I'm like, oh, I've got to watch a film ahead of a podcast recording. It's like, you want to do something tonight? And she's like, I, I absolutely did not want to spend my time watching Nicolas Cage. And I'm like, uh, it's a hard sell for some people. But even with this one, I was kind of like, like I swear to you in this one, he's not Nick Cage, Nick Cage. He's yeah. Nick Cage. Um and it's such a great role that Cage plays in this. And um, he said in numerous interviews that this was um, naked acting for him. Mm-hmm. I think the complete 180 from the uh, Novu Shumanic uh, role that he's an acting style that he made for himself. He's not hiding like bones in his jacket and stuff and summoning demons <laughs> to, to act for all of that. Um, and he'd said this was naked he was taking away from his usual performance style he was quieter more truthful he was taking wisdom from his past mistakes and putting them into this role and i think he said as well for joe this was one of the roles where he felt like this was closest to him and then he wasn't really acting at all um and it's it's rare when you get these films um i suppose when you don't see Nicolas Cage. Again, this is something I've sort of touched upon before, but a lot of the times with these big sort of Hollywood actors, you you don't always see the character, you see the actor. And a lot of the times that's the case for Nicolas Cage. Um, I suppose like with a Drive Angry, as you mentioned there as well, as part of your uh, double bill. Um, obviously the most distracting thing about that being that Chad Kroger bleached blonde hair, that inexcusable... Uh-huh inexcusable i don't even know what that hair is um i think about it all the time uh, <laughs> it's one of the worst i'm trying to think, i'm trying to think worst ha- hairs in it cage drive angry bangkok dangerous and next are up yeah, there for me that's definitely the top three that i had in mind too. <laughs> um i think touched on the hair in joe i think it's some fine hair mm-hmm. um it's weird as well that Nicolas Cage is the only actor where you can have a serious conversation about if his hair is or is not good. Yeah. <laughs> the beard's a little iffy in Joe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a, a full brown beard. He's got a bit of like grey on the front as well. Mm-hmm. This is a weathered man. This yeah. is a weathered man here. Not the weatherman, but... <laughs> also, I would say the weatherman as well. Um, when we're talking about not not necessarily the best Cage film, but certainly mm. underrated Cage films. I think The Weatherman's really underrated. I don't think I've seen it all the way through. I remember um, this by the point of recording, I've recorded the episode for it. By the time this is out, the episode will already be out. Um, but it was I've only seen it once for the podcast, and um, uh, Michael Caine's in that, um, mm. and and that's as it. This is kind of actually links into what I was sort of saying though about 
when you see certain actors and you see the actor, not the character. Mm-hmm. I think Michael Caine is like a perfect example of that yeah. because you see, oh, it's Spades, Michael Caine. I'm Nicholas Cage's father um, in The Weatherman doing, and I've got to say, really poor Amer- American accent. His American accents are the. I mean, his American accents are basically revenge for Dick Van Dyke's Mary Poppins accent. So <laughs> it's it's not like I can complain, but. Yeah, they do all, all, all across the board. Every time Michael Caine's tried to play an American, it's never, <laughs> never been great. I think Dick Van Dyke sort of um, set the perception of how English people are back by about a hundred years. We're still catching up. <laughs> yeah, I heard uh, Hugh Laurie in an interview talking about his incredible house accent, um, and in comparison to the. Uh, the Dick Van Dyke one, and he he said that it was uh, the Dick Van Dyke one was tantamount to an act of war. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. I always find it so funny with um, Hugh Laurie though, because I think by the time House was one of like the biggest shows in America when it was airing, um, and I loved House. Don't get me wrong, but a lot of um, I think especially in American audience only knew Hugh Laurie for House. So like, oh, who's this new this new actor? Um, MJ pointing to himself. But for um, uh, Brits like me, Hugh Laurie here is sort of English comedy royalty with, like, obviously Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry um, in various shows like Blackadder as well. So I knew him from shows in, like, the the 90s and such where he's doing foppish accents going, blah, 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 blah. You go, like, that's that's the blah, blah guy (laughs) being the most serious um, doctor in America ever. So when people just hear that he's a British actor and i was like oh well done hugh laurie you, you've uh you fooled them all you fooled them all yeah it uh it did blow my mind it was that same interview actually i think it was on david letterman or conan o'brien one of the two but when he walked out and he started speaking in his normal accent i couldn't believe it i was like what what do you mean <laughs> it's like you're meant to be a doctor i'm supposed to trust you yeah <laughs> yeah and then obviously through like the advent of the internet and things that came to the bit of fry and laurie and and black adder and things like that and realized kind of his spot in in you know like you said british comedy royalty you know essentially a uh not not quite the same lane of um farce and physical comedy but sort of picked up the torch from like a john cleese Mm -hmm. yeah definitely definitely um and obviously, this all links into what I was I was saying. You see certain um, uh, actors as characters, right. characters, and not the other way around. Cage being a prime example of that. A lot of the time, you see um, Cage as Cage uh, because yeah. you, I think in the back of our minds, we're kind of waiting for those Cageisms, that scream, that losing of the shit that most of us play <laughs> pay the ticket price for. And you know, I love Nicolas Cage. I ironically think. He's the greatest actor of, uh, of a generation. I'll fight anyone that tells me otherwise. Um, but this is one of those few films, um, and I put this like up there with adaptation, where I just think everything about the film is so good and immersive in a way that you don't see Cage as Cage. Like I saw Joe on the screen here. Like I was. I now not to say that there weren't a few Cageisms in there. Um, right. I mean, he does try to fight a few police officers. More um, than once. <laughs> more than once, and uh, not always one-on-one. Um, mm. 
But this is what I mean. I think it's one of Cage's um, certainly most underrated performances. Um, I've said it before. I, I sincerely don't think that Joe as a film, as Cage as an actor in Joe, gets enough credit at all. Oh, absolutely. I think that movie is one of the biggest Oscar snubs of that I think I can remember in recent memory. I don't, I remember watching Joe on that lazy Saturday afternoon and thinking, Oh, this is cage is going to get nominated for an Oscar for this. He's incredible in it. And the movie's great. And just nothing, nothing for that movie. <laughs> and looking, looking at the best actor field that year, I, there's a couple people on here. I would replace, uh, uh, including the winner, which was Matthew McConaughey for Dallas Buyers Club, um, uh, that that I would uh, replace with Nicolas Cage. I would actually replace them with uh, Tom Hanks and Captain Phillips, which also came out that year as well, but that's besides the point. Um, and yeah, uh, definitely in the Best Picture race, I would replace American Hustle because I did not enjoy that movie very much uh, <laughs> with Joe. And and it was one of those those movies that going back and revisiting it, for this show, um, it I had a little bit of trepidation because I was thinking, what if I'm looking back on it with rose-colored glasses and maybe I just think, oh, this is the movie that, uh, you know, got my wife to turn around on, on Cage and, and therefore I'm putting it at a higher, you know, place than it, it should be. And nope, rewatching it. Today, I think it's I think it's a brilliant movie, and I think anyone could enjoy it, whether you hate Nicolas Cage or not. Uh, yeah. If you know, if you're one of the people who definitely is not on board with the more Willy's Wonderland drive angry <laughs> aspects of him, then absolutely, this is the Nicolas Cage movie for you. Um, and I think it shows in every aspect. I think it's really it looks great. It uh, the story is really intimate and emotional. Um, He's he, outside of the, you know, normal, normal hair and, and facial hair work that he does. He's really imposing. He bulks up for the movie. Like he's, he's kind of built like a brick shithouse in this movie. And it's, <laughs> it's pretty great. Um, you know, he's got a few shirtless scenes and I think they use the body double for the nude scene. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a few she- scenes where he's got his shirt off and, and he, you know, he looks like a built dude that you wouldn't necessarily want to mess with. Oh God, yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. As I've said more times than I can count, I'm here for a raw dog scene with Nicolas Cage. Don't get me <laughs> wrong. I'm here to get down. Um, whether he's actually doing um, sort of those love scenes, I don't know. Part of me like wants to hope he's method enough um, that it is just full sex that we're watching because that's the only way he operates. Um, <clears throat> I could, with my warped perception of Cage as well, I kind of like to think that... Um, there's that snake that he grabs in one scene, that sort of venomous snake. Mm-hmm. He's like, this here is my friend. I like to think that he just injected that into his fucking leg to take the edge off <laughs> <laughs> just between scenes because that that's the way he gets uh, gets through the day and gets his jollies. Um, but like you say with, with the award snub, I think I have to agree. Um, it, you know, I think at least... It should have been long-listed, um, if not short-listed. Mm-hmm. The fact mm-hmm. it wasn't is such, I think, such a shame. I think when we sort of look back and sort of t- talk about this this film now as well, and um, 
and obviously we'll talk about this guy later as well. But Gary Poulter as Wade, um, and the so story, good. the story of Gary Poulter is um, yeah. so uh, tragic and yet incredible as well. Um, I was looking at the the sort of awards. It seemed to do all right on the film festival circuit. Picked up a mm-hmm. few nominations. Um, the and I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly. Uh, the Hoarding Awards in China. They did give Nicolas Cage Best Global Actor in a Motion Picture. Um, So they are awarded uh, honorary Golden Hoggers on this podcast for (laughs) for recognising the greatest actor. Um, But nothing mainstream, though, um, which is, uh, like you were saying, such such a shame. Um, Because I think across the board, a great casting. And um, uh, Ty Sheridan as well. Mm-hmm. As Gary, um, all round great performances, and this is kind of something I find with Cage as well. And I think it maybe part of this is because he kind of went into the um, naked acting, as he described it himself. Sometimes, for better or worse, um, better or worse, um, Cage is a scene stealer. Um, it's just what he does, and not that he always means to eat scenery and that's the kind of guy he is it's often with the way of his physicality his acting the way he delivers lines that like i say he's memorable not always for the best reasons but he's memorable but i definitely found in joe that um and i don't try to say this as like a, a a snide comment or anything like that Everyone was equally as memorable. Everyone held their own. Mm-hmm. No one person stole the attention off anyone else. Um, between sort of uh, Cage and Poulter and uh, Ty, this was some great casting. And I th- think, like we say, not even just with, with Cage for me or just Joe, the film in general, the fact that there wasn't just more nominations on more major awards is just... Such a shame uh, that this one really slipped by, sort of in, in like 2013, 2014, I think. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I've developed a reputation in my friend group as like the Joe guy, which is it's weird to be <laughs> that for that. But when I told people, hey, oh, I'm going to be on a Nicolas Cage podcast, everyone was like, oh, you're going to go talk about Joe? Because <laughs> I think it's the the first Nicolas Cage project that I talk about people with where I'm like, you got to you got to watch this one. It's he's so good in it. And like legitimately, you know, no, no asterisks, no caveats like. Um, you know, you're not going to be getting drive angry, but you're going to be getting a, a truly award worthy performance that was completely overlooked. And um, yeah, Ty Sheridan, I generally am not a huge fan of his work. Uh, I don't even really like him in mud that much. And it's basically the same, the same character. Um, <laughs> and he's great in this movie. You know, he, he, he walks this perfect line between, you know, a kid who's still a kid, but also a kid who's got some rough edges on him because of the situation that he grew up in. And, and just like, there's this, this world weariness to him that he balances out really well with hope for a better future and like the willingness to work hard towards it and, and not fall into the same traps that he's seen his, you know, parents fall into. Oh, definitely. Um, like I say, it's, it's kind of this characterization of Gary, you know, like a 15 year old kid who's got the three times as many or three times the amount of life experience of someone 
you know, like I'll say three times his age, who's yeah. been through enough, done enough at 15. Um, and even though it's, you know, maybe not the greatest resume in the world, it's enough to win cage over in 45 seconds. It's like, I pick you cameras. You can work for me tomorrow. <laughs> um, <laughs> like cucumbers and zucchinis. If you've picked them, cage will hire you to yeah. chop down, to chop down some motherfucking trees. He's kind of like the character in this who I think you have to, you kind of pin the film pins its hopes on for sort of that, mm-hmm. that brighter tomorrow, you know, um, we get uh, obviously the the dad here who is um, just this disheveled, uh, drunk kind of wreckage of a human being. He's lived that life. He's uh, dependent on alcohol. He's beating other homeless people to death. He's pimping out his daughter just to earn thirty bucks, sixty bucks, just to get another bottle of wine or drink or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we get Cage's Joe who is. Like I say, the ex-con who uh, I think he himself says the only reason that he he's still functioning is because he has restraint. And the, it's kind of like there's not really one sympathetic adult in the film. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I kind of like that. Or maybe sympathetic isn't the right uh, the right word, but um, so everyone has got their demons in this. No, nothing is glorified, and we're not completely vilifying anyone but it makes you know that these people they're not good people um and it's kind of like uh joe is just a few notches above wade it's almost like wade's the person joe could have turned into yeah had he continued without that restraint yeah it's this movie is a great um example of and it's something that's been coming back in recent years. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I mean, I guess it's kind of besides the point about why we're doing movies in this tradition way more than it seems like I can remember. But it's it's a very great um, example of like it's called like Southern Gothic um, mm-hmm. type, and that can yeah. be it can be horror. It, it, it also doesn't necessarily have to be this. I would say this is you know it's not a horror movie by any stretch, but it, it definitely fits into the Southern Gothic uh, genre and aesthetic, um, you know, and, and things like like Lovecraft Country goes into it, which is obviously straight up horror. Um, even, you know, it was pretty maligned, but Hillbilly Elegy that came out um, last year, The Devil All the Time that came out last year, uh, also a Southern Gothic thing. That's It's a really popular subgenre. Um, I think Joe was in kind of before that started to take off and maybe that has something to do with it. But because of that these characters are very complicated oh three billboards that was the other big one anyway um because of of the way it's shot like yeah there or the the the, the subgenre it, it takes place in it's not particularly redemptive on any of its adult characters it's it's a lot of um people with complicated histories and complicated pasts who haven't made the right decisions all the time you know even you know joe does right by his employees at every stretch of the the the, the film and, and he makes sure they're paid he makes sure they're paid on time he also you know he runs a tight ship and um it, it doesn't seem like he's running a tight ship because he's this maniacal manipulative guy he runs a tight ship because he wants these guys to know the value of hard work and the value of of being disciplined in what they're doing um 
And, you know, at the, at the very end of the film, he gets a job for maybe even less than picking zucchinis and cucumbers. He gets a job simply because he worked under Joe. And he said, you know, if you work for Joe, I'm sure you'll do great here. And I was thinking a lot about the, the, the career that they're in, right? They're, they're poisoning these trees um, so that they can come plant new trees, basically, that'll grow stronger because these trees are dead. And when Joe's explaining this to Gary, he says, nobody wants these trees. And I think that unlocks why he's in this line of work. I think Joe sees himself as a tree that nobody wants. And he is just kind of getting by, you know, it's, it's, it's not a story of people flourishing. It's a story of people getting by. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's a great analogy with the, um, with the old trees as well. Um, obviously he's got that, the crew who he's, um, you know, looking after shipping them to that, um, woodland in his in his truck they're all compact in there with their ghostbuster packs on mm-hmm. uh poison chopping down the trees um and i guess it's like you said you know the trees um they're old that nobody needs them and it's kind of it's almost like they're representing like i suppose like the old way of being the things that are in the way of i guess young fresh and new things from flourishing and then obviously skipping towards the end here um when all those trees have gone down you know when joe's work has been done and then the new work um that's uh gary gets the job through because you know joe they're replanting those trees there so new life has flourished and i think it's goes to say that you do right by cage you'll look after you in the next life mm-hmm. um as I can, you know, attest to doing a Nicholas Cage podcast. I've... Yeah, you're you're golden in the next life. You're. I'm gonna <laughs> I've got transcend. my ticket punched. <laughs> got my ticket punched. I mean, on the Nicholas, you know, the Twitter account I have for this show, I won Jiu-Jitsu on Blu-ray. What more can I ask for? <laughs> Kate, Cage Senpai is looking down by offering me terrible films in physical copy form. Um, but I, obviously, as we're saying with the adults as well, we touched upon this earlier. Um, Gary Poulter, sort of the um, the only major role that he had. Um, David Gordon Green, the director, sort of known for casting locally for his films. Um, so we cast all of the uh, the crew that Joe has, and most notably, he cast Gary Poulter as Wade Jones. Um, so a lot of the tragedies that. Um, Gary Poulter had struggled throughout his whole life with substance abuse, with homelessness. He was scouted at a bus stop, I believe, and they brought him in for an audition. And I think initially they were offering him one of two roles. Is one as the guy who was uh, cutting the deer carcass when Joe visits mm. his friends, um, and they said, "Well, we can, you know, half a day shoot, and you can smash that role. You know, just have fun, call it a day, or we can cast you as the third lead." Um, but, you know, we're going to need you to turn up, commit to this thing, be sober, work hard. And um, for everything I read, you know, Gary saw this as like a new chance. He took that um, to heart. He left post-it notes on like David Gordon Green's trailer saying like, I'm here, I'm reliable. Um, I read as well that a lot of the producers were um, worried and cautious about his casting because they thought he might present a risk i think at the time of shooting he was already very ill but green committed to having polter in the film uh then i think after shooting 
I think again due to the alcoholism he was found sort of dead in sort of shallow water and um, performance later going on to be described as say like stunning and one of the great one-shot performances in the history of cinema I didn't know that sort of the first time I saw the film I just you know thought oh what a great film everyone was so great and went away with happy thoughts about the film but then mm. doing more research into it coming into this episode and sort of reading into that and then you, you watch that with those with that um, with that in mind it just kind of changes the whole dynamic of the performance it's such a uh such a a, a tragic story in, in a in, in many aspects that you know i think he got auditions after this as well and no doubt like he would have got more roles to come because it was such a, a powerful um believable performance as well um one of the big things coming into this episode I wanted to ask you was about the performance, about the action, what your thoughts and feelings were on that as well. I mean, everything you said is correct. And that that um, line about one of the great one-shot performances of all time, it's astounding. It, it's so good. And, uh, you know, when I was watching it this morning, after he meets his demise in the film, uh, I had I mentioned to my wife, like, oh yeah, he, you know, he died two months after shooting. And she said, Oh yeah, he he did look pretty old. And I was like, he is 53. He's 53 years old. Yeah, he he with the greatest of respect in the film, you might think, oh, it's hair, makeup, whatever, but he looks mid to late 70s. Yeah, definitely. Uh my father passed away at 70 and he looks almost identical to my father when my when he was 70 and dying of cancer i mean that's that's how he he looks in the movie and so um yeah it's it's a powerful powerful performance that is i don't know what he tapped into within himself to to pull this out it had to have been some dark stuff and you know he clearly was a man who had gone through some some rough spots to look you know you know, and I don't, I don't want to say it to make fun of him, but who, who looked like my my dying father is just a, a guy in a movie at fifty three, yeah. um, and I think knowing that you can see every ounce of that coming out in the performance as well. You know, the the on the Wikipedia page it says that uh, the Independent said he's a man so consumed by self loathing that he will go to extreme lengths to destroy the life of his son, and I think, you know, not to do armchair diagnosis or read into that, I think he did tap into some of that self-loathing um, that he knows got him in the situations that he was into that he led to him being discovered at that bus stop in the first place. Um, I think it's it's plain as day in his performance. Yeah, um, totally, totally agree. Uh, it's kind of like a weird... I guess two sides of the same coin kind of thing. You know, there's there's no way that Polter didn't tap into a lot of his own troubles. As Cage said, he was tapping into his own past mistakes. So you can imagine there must have been some kind of kinship there. Or you would certainly hope. I was reading a few articles about Gary Polter as well. There's one, um, EW.com had a, like a, a lovely piece just about him. And there was um, a paragraph they had here. Uh, Cage recognized Polter's talent and welcomed the experience of working with him despite his lack of resume 
Uh, Cage said, to me, that just made my job more exciting. I'm not a trained actor. I'm just someone who grew up watching movies and found my own way, my own style, my own craft. And in very much the same way, so was Gary Poulter. He was a street performer. He found his own way. And that's so true, because I think that like we were saying before, um, it, it's such a memorable performance as well. Um, you know, a dark character from the start of things um, who goes on this dark, irredeemable path mm-hmm. throughout the whole film. Um, and then it culminates with that very sad ending at the end on the bridge when he, you know, post everything that's gone down, the confrontation with um, Willie, who we'll get on to, um, he looks at like a dying Joe on the bridge and he's like, are you my friend? And when he's not answered, he jumps off the bridge. It's such um, an affecting end. Um, obviously, you don't see the body, you just see him go off the bridge and you you, you hear that thud. Um and like I said, it just makes you think, um, you know, this would have been, you know, so many doors opened, um, but obviously alcoholism, no no laughing matter, no joke at all. And uh, and you see it in performance, but you get that, you do get sort of those few parts of lightness with him, uh, with Wade, when you, you think, oh, yeah, maybe there is still a human there, there's still a father that cares when... Um, and this is before uh, Gary meets Willie for the first time on the bridge. Uh, Wadey's just sort of sat on the uh, the embankment on the side and is like, hey, let me show you all about body popping. And then yeah. like, you're, 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 and he's thrown all the moves around. And I think David Gordon Green said that was something they put in there because they saw that, um, they saw that part of him in real life and they wanted to get that into the film. And um, like I said, you, you get the, like... With a few of the characters, you know, they've we sort of see them at really dark points in this film. You know, there's not a lot of light for really any of them except Gary, who's um, even then, you know, uh, things are still bleak, but they're looking slightly up by the end. Um, but we meet them at dark crossroads of their lives through Gary. Joe has a shot at redemption. Uh, Wade is just too far gone. And in the middle of all this madness, we meet um, the awful, awful Willie, uh, played by Ronnie Jean Blevins, who um, he, I think from what we know about him, he has some long-standing feud with Joe. He's some kind of small-time criminal in that town. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we... He gets beaten up on the bridge by Gary because he just comes up to him. He's thrown the gun off the bridge that he shot Joe with. And then me, uh, Gary goes up to him and says, oh, you know, can I, can we get a lift back into town? Um, and then immediately he's like, can't I fuck your sister? I was like, okay, so, we've, so we're chalking up the fucking dirt bags in this one. <laughs> yeah. And here's Willie. Um, so with, with Willie, you know, with his presence of just just grim it just makes you just like shudder thinking about him uh how did you find sort of uh, willie and his sort of presence in the film as well uh it's funny because willie is almost the stereotypical nicholas cage performance in the film it's a really big performance in a film not full of big performances at all yeah. and it, it, it 
that's one thing that struck me actually with the Southern Gothic thing. And he's the character who I think most represents that aesthetic. And it, it did remind me of the devil all the time. I don't know if you saw that movie. Not yet. It's been on my, it's been on my watch list for so long now. It's not great. And it's a movie full of those types of really big performances. Uh, Robert Pattinson makes some choices in it <laughs> with his performance. And I've heard, I've heard. I was, I was thinking about it because I was, I was like, why does this work in the context of this movie that has a lot of naturalistic performances and, and you know, not even non-actors working in it. And Willie doesn't feel out of place, but it's a much bigger performance than, than anything else in the, uh, in the film. And I think it's because it still feels grounded in some sort of reality. You can, you can see the, the, the way Willie would come to be in this. I think, especially because he keeps leaning on that, like I went through a windshield at 4am and I don't give a fuck or whatever he says, you know, like, We've all been through a windshield. Grow up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's like this uh he 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 his presence in the movie is like an incredibly low stakes like big fish in a small pond joker sort of. He's scarred up. He goes around doing crimes and like talking about how badass he is. But the moment he's faced with any sort of consequences, he completely buckles. Like you know, he has that scene in the on the bridge with Gary where he throws a gun away and then he's talking to him about, you know, how he went through the windshield at 4 a.m. and, you know, um, giving them the ride and, and, and all this stuff. And then once he transitions into the talk about, you know, wanting to have sex with his sister and Gary just like this 15 year old just immediately kicks this guy's ass like it just <laughs> with with no hesitation or really any pushback. Uh, he's able to accomplish this. And then later in the film, when Joe confronts him, he just buckles. Like, he's just like, I'm so sorry, Joe. Like he's terrified of Joe, even though he wants to, you know, the, the, the closest he can come to actually confronting Joe is by shooting with a shotgun from a car that he can drive away in, uh, (laughs) from however many yards away, even when he's confronting with that and Joe gets shot, his ultimately, you know, fatal, gunshot wound spoilers i guess sorry everyone uh it, it it doesn't come from him it comes from his buddy that was there this is the thing about willie i think and you've sort of hit the nail on the head here like for all intents and purposes this man is a fucking a worm personified like <laughs> yeah. he's small time on his own he's nothing and again respect to gary a child can best him because he's so fucking feeble as a person yeah. but when he's got that um that goon with him i'm not sure if that he gets named or not then he becomes um a, a, a bit more um antagonistic in in his uh pursuit of just getting back at people who've wronged him which that's the whole thing that leads him to Wade in the first place. You know, Wade's just doing his, I don't know if you can call it his rounds, his patrol of just looking for, uh, for booze or, you know, just doing things that an abusive father does when he's not in the house, I guess. Um, and then he's like, you know, I've got, a, you know, something that could, could put us, we could work together, get rid of these problems that we've got. Um, so to simultaneously work together to sort of, bring down Joe, get revenge on a child by having sex with his sister in the back of the van. That scene at the end when um, 
Wade has escorted uh, the sister there. And it's worth noting as well, um, Gary's sister um, is a mute as well. She doesn't speak. Uh, he says that she used to, but one day she just stopped, whether that's through... I guess the trauma of that house life. I think that's... it's that. That's the implication. I think the implication is that she's suffered sexual abuses at the hands of Wade. That that was how I read into it because I know that is a that's a common um, or I don't know how common it is. I don't want to say it's common, but I've I've heard of stories of people who have been uh, trapped in physically and sexually abusive households that have stopped talking for years at a time. Yeah, it, it it definitely breeds as um, trauma, as abuse. Um, just anyone who's associated with Wade by proxy is going to suffer and not not come out of this. I mean, they they don't massively explore um, the mother character all that much, but from the screen time she gets, like you can tell that. She's been affected. She's been hurt as well. And they're living in a condemned house, which I think, if that doesn't say everything, mm. um, <laughs> a condemned family in a condemned house, um, just destined to sort of be, you know, not fit for purpose in any way, shape or form. And then the team up with Willie, who at the end, he puts on that um, that sort of dirty, like a rabbit mask or something. Mm-hmm. And he's like, like, Hey kid, like, do you like fluffy animals or something or something like that? And you're like, my God, Joe, kill this man and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> kill him. Stop him right now. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, this is, I think three confrontations they have. There's one where Joe gets shot mm-hmm. and then, um, then there's the one where he goes in the bar and he starts talking and you can see him trying to restrain himself. And then he just hits his head into the side of the bar. And he's like, you got to call the police. And then he leaves. And then one was like, I went through a windshield at four in the morning. And then he gets shot through the mouth. And he's like, yeah. about fucking time. God, God damn it. Um, so the story of Willie um, taken out like that. Um, but it's, and, and something I touched on there, you know, with, um, that first time that Joe gets shot, um, he performs that surgery on himself. He takes the bullet out of himself. He stitches himself up. And this is one of those things with um, the character of Joe. You don't really come to know much about his past mm-hmm. life. He explains he was an ex-com. He served 29 months, um, as he describes, basically for self-defense. An officer thought he was sort of... Um, uh, up to something, he grabbed the gun in self-defense and the officer shot himself through the leg. I think it was something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he served that time and now he's been trying to be on the straight and narrow. I suppose fortunately for him, he knows the officer um, of their local sheriff's department because mm-hmm. he seems to get a few slaps on the wrist a few times. Like... <laughs> Joe's at it again. This is textbook Joe. Yeah. Uh, um, and as we said at the start, he's uh, fighting those two cops. He gets jailed. I think he gets bailed out. And then there's that poor cop towards the end of the film as well um, who's like, oh, sir, can you take this breathalyzer? And he's like, nope. And then <laughs> has to chase him down. The cough gets roughed up. And then I found it very funny as well that like, after that cop has been roughed up and Joe has just driven off, 
Um, again, Joe is defended by his uh, officer friend because he's like, yeah, that cop is like a loser anyway. I ain't coming. I was like, really? Um, okay. The cop just runs left off camera into a field. Yeah. <laughs> we just never see him again. It's like, for all we know, that cop is still running to this day. Um, so I think and this is, again, something I wanted to ask you. Like, I don't know... If there's any thoughts you had about Joe's character, you know, what we don't see about him, you know, the arc he has in the film overall as well. Um, because I, I think with the way he stitches himself up, my my reading it was, you know, maybe he served um, in yeah. the armed forces. There's definitely a history there. Uh, dare I say a history of uh, maybe violence in some aspects. But I was wondering if you had any sort of thoughts on what you think Joe may be. Yeah, Joe definitely reads as a veteran um, or someone who had maybe a less uh, savory life in 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 his past. Um, I don't think that the, you know, I think the getting caught with the cops and serving the 29 months was the rock bottom moment for him to realize that something needed to change. But I don't think it was his first violent encounter at all i don't you know i i don't think that um, i mean it certainly wasn't his first violent encounter with willie because there's this this mythical you know he slapped me at the bar the other night like he's he's as obsessed with that as he is with going through a windshield at 4 (laughs) a.m and uh you know he he, either that or he's just one of these guys who has grown up in rural texas uh you know hunting and fishing his whole life and it, it has some basic field medicine knowledge based on his career as well. You know, they're working around the, the poison and the, the, the machetes and the axes and all that. But I think, I think uh, has the job because of his experience with field medicine. And I'm not sure it's from necessarily military service. I think it could be a, a previous life of crime. He seems like you know, it may not have been a major, he may not have been, you know, uh, doing drug runs and working with the cartels and things like that, but he certainly has something. There's, there's something there that, that we are not getting the full story on. That is something he's carrying guilt over beyond, oh, I got in an altercation with some cops and did 29 months. Like that's, you know, not to say that's nothing, but that's nothing if you're a criminal, like, I don't see that as a catalytic event for changing your life mm-hmm. in a vacuum. Yeah, I again agreed. There's there's definitely something to Joe that we don't have the full story on. I think, like him, like Wade, we are seeing um, the aftermath of a life maybe not so well lived, mm-hmm. um, and sort of how you know. How do you come back from that? I mean, with obviously the comparison to it being quite a Southern Gothic piece as well, um, you know, I I don't know how well maybe that reflects maybe some parts of Texas, I don't know. All I know about Texas is that it's very big and according to the country song, it's where all my exes live. (laughs) Those are are the only two things I know about. um, I know about Texas. Um, But as, as we touched on, obviously, through... Uh, Joe, a lot of his redemption comes through Gary, and I think it's that chance for him to, um, you know, pass something on to the next generation to start again, almost. Because what we see, the way he deals with stuff at the moment, you know, he has that job. He's he's 
very committed to it. He's loyal to the people that are loyal to him. Um, and he's, um, quite a fan of the old, of the old brothel, um, mm-hmm. down the way as well. Um, I think it's, uh, con, I think there's, there's one or two of the, of the people, the sex workers there that he seems to, well, liaise with, for lack of a better term. Yeah. One, one was Connie. Um, but he, that sort of led into one of my favorite interactions of the film. This is like after the um, the second interaction with um, <clears throat> Willie in the bar, where he sort of hit his head against the the bar, attacked him there, and then he's driven off. He goes to the bar. Um, there, guard dog puts him off, and we get the first line. It's like, "I love dogs, just not that dog. That dog is an asshole." <laughs> um, and then he he um, comes back with his dog. Uh, his dog who kills the guard dog, and then he goes upstairs. I think it's Merle who he sleeps with, and he yeah. says, and he <laughs> asks her, "Do you have any pets? What's your favorite color? Blow me." Um, and I was like, "That you know, there's a man who a gentleman, maybe a, a gentleman. You know, he got to know her um, in a. Yeah. Fun- <laughs> I mean, that's speed dating to the extreme." <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, the, the two pertinent questions: pets, colours. My penis is there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I, I love that sequence too because um, it. This is the first time we've seen Joe retaliate with violence. That I think I think that's right. Um, I mean, he obviously has the self defense moment where he pulls out the pistol and tries to shoot Willie, but you know he is aggressed in that scene in this well he comes up and he's talking shit for sure but he's Mm. not being physically aggressive with him and then joe you know slams his head on the bar and then smashes the glass over him and the whole movie this dog has been on the leash and it's you know very connected to joe in that now it sort of represents joe coming off his leash a little bit you know his that restraint that he's been talking about is kind of left the building um until you know the end of the film um you know it's 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 completely different and then we see him you know just attacking cops and you know ultimately using that violence streak for good obviously but he goes through a lot of his old ways it seems like to get there yeah yeah absolutely it's 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 that build up to the lack of restraint, even though it is for the right reasons. Um, it's, I guess, it's almost like Joe showing his real self is what mm-hmm. costs him his life. But if he'd shown restraint, then um, uh, the sister, Gary's sister, would potentially be dead. So it's that, that, that grand sacrifice. But like I say, that redemption um, through meeting Gary and when I think he maybe he almost sees himself in, in Gary as well because there's no I guess real reason for his character to go out of his way to um to help Gary. The first time he drops Gary and Wade off, he sees Wade punch Gary to the floor, take his money. Um obviously Gary pursues Joe in the sense he's like, look, don't let my dad speak for us. Let me speak for my actions. Let my work ethic yeah. represent itself. Um I'm good for the job. I can do it. So he definitely proves himself um, throughout the course of the film. But then you see Joe sort of that armor sort of 
slowly coming off as well. And there's those wonderful scenes where they're um, uh, sort of looking for Joe's dog, and they've gone to that uh, that field with all the boats in there, mm-hmm. and <laughs> Joe's explaining to Gary um, how to do the um, you know, your interfacing is to have pain, but you're smiling, but you're smiling through the pain. It's like, yeah. oh no, that's too, that's that's too much, uh, that's too much smiling. And then it's almost like he's actually, you know, if if there was a Nick Cage school of acting, you get a free little tip in there as well. Um, and I and I thought, I think naturally, though those were some of the best scenes um, in in the film where you see that. Um, that growing bond between them um and it's it really really stuck with me um again sort of the face scenes obviously an audio medium um i can't perform the face for you but watch it just for that of nicholas cage showing you how to be how to smile through pain if you take nothing else away from the film as well um but did, did you sort um did you enjoy that scene as well um or any of the scenes with them too that you you quite liked yeah that whole sequence is great i had forgotten about that entire sequence because it's it's ultimately inconsequential in the grand scheme of like the overarching story um but it's this cool mm-hmm. little detour that you know just kind of turns into a little bit of a hangout movie um in the middle of it and it it's almost it's on the verge of seeming out of place given that the movie's starting to ramp up towards its climax like this is after he's been arrested even and um so it just kind of feels like okay we're just gonna pause the movie to you know go look for a dog when it was clearly like he was escalating his his unrestrained behavior up to this point but i think this sequence is also what gives him the purpose to go and channel that unrestrained behavior towards the the more redemptive side of uh, saving the, the the sister and and finally bringing you know Willie and his goon to justice the way they they need to be. And I don't think you necessarily get there without this section because you also get the new truck in that. Like the, he's very connected to the truck yes. um, yeah. over the course of the film and and you can see that, you know, the truck represents growth in Joe, um, that not that he's ready to move on because I think it does. I think he has to pull that cool guy face in order to <laughs> buy him the self, the new truck. But I think yeah. it represents him letting go of the past and embracing a new way of doing things that are similar. It's still a periwinkle blue GMC. it's just new you know it's still unrestrained violent behavior it's just being put towards saving a little girl's life (laughs) yeah again like you said i think a lot of things are representative of joe passing on bits to gary um actually eventually with the truck which is very attached to the dog by the end of the film which uh gary basically inherits Mm -hmm. um the lighter as well mm-hmm. and he says um it makes a ping sound that hookers like and he's like you can be sleeping with all the girls when you're older i wish nick cage was my dad <laughs> um <laughs> um but a lot of this you know passing of the torch stuff as he's given him i guess you know letting go of parts of himself and passing on the good stuff to uh to gary to take on to um take on to a new generation um but you imagine one day down the line, Gary's going to have a lot of therapy. He went through a lot of stuff <laughs> prior to his prior to his sixteenth birthday. Um, 
But with all, all of that said, um, to sort of look at, I guess, slowly wrapping up here, again, for me, this, um, we've said it just a number of times here, a great movie, great performances um, in the canon of Cage. This film is so easy to miss because it went under the radar, mm-hmm. um, but it's such a great performance. I mean, I like to, I, I liked how, you know, throughout the film, David Gordon Green, he's not trying to, as I said earlier, he's not trying to completely um, change Joe. He's not trying to entirely demonize Wade. They're ultimately two very imperfect men who are struggling at different points in their life. Um, we still get the the scenes of them bonding with Gary here and there, even though there's their own backdrops of, I guess, um, violence, a lot of things unsaid, a lot of machismo as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the film, it's... And like I say, I hate remind, having to remind people that he can act, but this is a genuinely brilliant reminder that Cage is a great actor and that he can when he so chooses, do real, do, do nuance, and bring humanity to his performances. And also worth noting, as we wrap up, that he turned down The Expendables 3 to do Joe as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I read that in the IMDb trivia, and I was like, ah. I mean, I love this movie, but also what could have been. <laughs> I, think it, I think it's one of those things that speak to Cage, and this is one of my theories on him, um, you know the, the 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 documented money issues aside, I think he's that actor where you know you could have let's say an Expendables three and let's say whatever role that was going to entail he was let's assume there was a few millions on that paycheck, but I think he would go for a Joe over an Expendables three every time if it's a role he thinks is artistically good, what a role he can push himself with, one that he can show growth and development and channel um, a different side of him as well. I think he, he goes for the artistry every time. That's sort of my, my reading of cage. Yeah. There's this, um, Oh gosh, let me, let me look it up here. This is the everyone's favorite part of every podcast, the furiously Googling things. Um, <laughs> This is the part we come for. It's the, it's the drum roll. It's the tension. Yeah, right. Um, GQ, that GQ video. I don't know if if uh, you've talked about it on this um, I know the one you mean, yes. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, Nicolas Cage breaks down his most iconic characters from GQ. It's a 21-minute video of Nicolas Cage talking about how he approached various characters over his entire career. And it's really insightful. It's, I think that's also something, you know, obviously uh, outside of a film that you can watch that I think can really clue you into how thoughtful of a performer he actually is. Like, yeah, he's big and over the top and does kooky shit, but he, there's never not a reason, I think. Um, you know, he, he approaches that with like, he asks the why is this person doing this in, in a way that I think would be surprising to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Like a- a- again, something you know, I-, I touch on. You you look at Cage and you see the the over the top Cage, the screamy Cage, the shouty Cage, and 
again, you know, whether you want to take this as tongue in cheek or not, um, he's not always interested in realism because he comes at it with a surreal edge and German expressionism and the Novo shamanic. And he um, very much, I think it's fair to say, marches to the beat of his own drum. Um, But he, see, I don't, it's, like I said, this is this is kind of the question mark. The mystery of Cage is so difficult to pin down because you can't pin him down. There's no, not really any other actor like him. Um, but I like thinking about you know he's 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 kicking down the doors that should have stayed locked so that other people <laughs> may may walk may walk through them and maybe we'll get um. Another Nicholas Cage, you, know, um, you mentioned Robert Patterson earlier. Some people are making the comparison between those two now with Ooh. some of the choices that Patterson is making. Yeah. Um, and I, for, on the whole, I do like Robert Patterson. Um, I think he's done, you know, whether you like the Twilight series or not, um, that's just in the rear view mirror yeah, now. So no, no one's. Him. No one's talking about Twilight anymore. You know, we're talking about the Batman. Uh, we're talking about the pastor, as you said, uh, the lighthouse as well. He's so good. Um, I think he's making a lot of um, a lot of choices. And I, you know, if I could call it now, I think he's going to be one of those actors that a lot of people will be talking about years down the line, if not already. Will it be for the right reasons? Alec Cage. Who knows? Um, yeah. But I, I definitely think he's he's one to watch as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think too with Nicolas Cage, like he can channel that shouty persona into really, really. You guys talked about this episode. Well, I saw that you'd recorded it. I don't know if it's out yet, but um, it's it was actually a film that that wasn't on the list you had sent me. But if it was, I probably would have chosen that, and that's Matchstick Men. I think it is the perfect marriage of the sort of, you know, Nicolas Cage that wins an Oscar for leaving Las Vegas and the shouty, twitchy, weirdo Nicolas Cage that we know and love. I think he's incredible in that movie. <laughs> yeah, um, Matchstick Men um, was one, again, that I'd sort of slept on and I I, I think I thought it was going to be one film, turned him out to be another film. And it was one of those where... Um, could easily have turned into your textbook cage that you expect to get but there are those times in certain films where he's used correctly i think he is an actor that role depending he has to be used correctly Mm -hmm. like you can't and some directors some films do do this they have cage um for the sake of cage but Mm -hmm. sometimes with certain films left behind the less said the better um but then there, there are some films where i think if the film can match cage or they just know what they're, they're doing and it's not just the director on cocaine and, and just like just throwing the rule book out the window um you'll be into a great thing um like with willie's wonderland you know this is a film that has matched cage you get um some you know almost slapstick genre slice of B-movie fun with Matchstick Men, um, Matchstick Men, uh, Willy's Wonderland. Um, but I suppose the link there, he beats up a Willy in this film. He beats up a Willy in that film. Oh, hey. wow. Hey. Full, full circle. I did it, everyone. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, Matchstick Men is another one, which that's a great point, really, of um, 
of what I think are underrated Cage films. Not that the film didn't do well, but it's a one that it's a good performance, which I think not enough people sort of talk about in the yeah. um, in the canon of Cage. Yeah, he's so good in that movie. He, uh, I that's another one that I will champion to people, and it's I, I think it's an overlooked Ridley Scott movie too. Like people, I think forget that he made that that movie at all. Yeah, yeah, because I when I sort of researched it, I was like, this is a Ridley Scott like. I had no idea. Like I, I you know, no conception that he was associated with the film until I did it. So uh, again, I think just on the whole, and obviously Sam Rockwell's in there. Sam Rockwell's always good. It's 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 crazy. Like I say, I think Joe Matchstick Man, the Weatherman, we touched on earlier. For me, um, and I guess this depends on when. When you ask me, it may change, but as of right now, this recording, if you said three underrated Cage films go, I think those would be the three that I'd give you. Joe, Matchstick Man, and The Weatherman would be my underrated three for Cage. I think I would... Joe is number one. Matchstick Man's number two for sure. Three, I think, might be rotating. I would say, you know... um, I, I almost want to, and maybe this is a recency bias, I almost would say Drive Angry. I think he's great in that movie uh, for the, 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 the stereotypical Nicolas Cage. Uh, you know, the shit you want to see him do in that movie. I don't think enough people really talk about how great of a, an over-the-top Nicolas Cage performance that is. Yeah, and I've, um, I said this in the recording for Drive Angry as well. Despite the title of the film, he's not as angry as you might think he is. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but that that is actually one of my... If I were to make a different list um, of my... What, what to call this off my My pleasantly surprised Cage list, I think, in as much as films that um, I suppose I thought were going to be one thing, but was something else, I was like, that was really good. I like, like, I like Drive Angry. I do too. Um, <laughs> I think, yeah, this has got sort of my, my cogs turning out. Red Rock West is another really good Cage film. I haven't seen that one. And it's so strange because it's one of his going by um, Rotten Tomatoes. Red Rock West is one of his highest rated films. Um, even higher than Adaptation, actually, and Moonstruck. It's got no- 95% on... Rotten Tomatoes. It's very, very good. Don't get me wrong, but that's another one where, like, no one's talking about Red Rock West. I don't even um, know if I've heard of that. It's uh, kind of like a a neo thriller western. Um, very good. Um, you get the line, and this is completely out of context. Him shouting "Fuck Mexico!" Um, out of context, obviously, does it know justice? Very good. Very good. Is Dennis um, Hopper of the villain in it? Yes. I'm sold. <laughs> I'm in. It's one of those like mistaken identities embroiled in a scam kind of thing. Um like I say, it's one of those one of like his highest rated film uh, where he's like of lead billing. And no one knows about it. No one's talking about Red Rock West. Um that's kind of been been lost to the history books unfortunately yeah um, that's but... that's wild uh okay let's see where can i watch this just watch app loading <laughs> <And> <laughs> um 
Yeah, that's great. Uh, yeah, I think I think uh, he's he's been in so much stuff too because you know because of the money <laughs> the money woes and things like that. Oh, it's not available streaming anywhere here. Ah, oh, that's I th- I th- think I had to VPN to find it when I yeah. when I watched it sort of last year. Um, uh, but yeah, v- very slept on film that very slept on. Yeah, so I think he is actually in, um, and I've I've been a guest on a on a, on a podcast for this actor as well, um, dedicated to this actor. I think he's very much sort of in the Keanu Reeves camp, where yeah, I, I think that you know. He has been misused kind of a lot over the course of his career, but I don't think he's a bad actor. I don't think Keanu's a bad actor. I think he's, you know, I think, I mean, especially lately, I think Keanu's been turning in the best work of his career. But before that, even like some of the, the one of the movies that I watched for the Keanu podcast that I guessed it on, I thought he was great in it. The movie was fine, but he was fantastic in it. It was a really early Keanu Reeves movie. Um, I don't remember the name of it. It was something school. I think it was right after or right before Bill and Ted. Yeah, I mean, Keanu Reeves, exactly like you said, in the last few years, and you know, obviously can't not mention the John Wick trilogy, um, for, for the action genre, which, you know, everything has been done. So it's just how you kind of reinvent the wheel, I guess, with the action genre. That was like just so fresh and exciting and i don't often sort of um go out of my way to buy like blu-rays or anything Mm -hmm. just because i mean one for the practicality of space two is kind of like oh am i actually gonna watch it or am i just buying this because and because we're streaming everything's so easy to find online but the john wick films like i enjoyed so much and like these are films i will watch again and enjoy them equally um each time um, I have the trilogy on uh, on Blu-ray and handful of Cage things, um, just because, and also Jiu-Jitsu, as I mentioned, yeah, uh, which is a film I'm coming up to, um, which I'm I've heard is trash. I'm anticipating trash. It looks real but, bad, <laughs> but now I've got it on Blu-ray, um, so that's very very exciting. Um, but yeah, I suppose wrapping things up here. I guess your final thoughts on. Um, I think it's no secret you're a fan of the film, but your your final thoughts on Joe? Uh, yeah, it's great. See it. Uh, you probably haven't, um, and I don't mean that to be mean, but mo- most people I talk to have not seen the film, and it's a shame because I think it is an award worthy performance from several people, uh, most notably Cage. I think he's so so good in this movie, and I think it is a movie that if you're not, you know, usually on board with him, it's not going to matter. I think he. He disappears into the role as much as Nicolas Cage can disappear into a role. Um, yeah. And I think thematically it's really strong. I think it, it fits into that Southern Gothic aesthetic. I mean, it doesn't, I guess the one thing it's missing is sort of like a, 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 a Christian faith-based thing. Although there's a little bit of it. He sells out the daughters for $30, $30 which is, you know, 30 pieces of silver is what Judas sold out Jesus for. So you get it, it kind of colored in, but I mean, if you told me, the director of Pineapple Express and Your Highness made a movie with Nicolas Cage. Uh, do you want to watch it? I would say yes, but I don't think I would expect it to be this film. And I think that is one reason to watch it is because I think it's very surprising, both the people in front of and behind the camera. 
Again, 100% agrees. Um, as he touched on there when I was doing the research, I was like, wait a minute, the guy that directed Halloween made this? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is like, hey, we're talking about range, David Gordon Green, Nicolas Cage, a lovely pairing. Um, but as as you said there, you know, uh, and again, we sort of say this not to be snobs, but because genuinely a lot of people haven't seen this film. Mm-hmm. You know, this was unfortunately small release um at uh at the movies at cinemas only turned 2.4 million at the box office by all accounts it was unfortunately a flop but as we've said from the start the middle the end i think this is fair to say all cage bias aside this film snubbed this film was snubbed there's no other other way to say it it's one of the underrated cage performances Gary Bolt, um, Gary Poulter and Ty Sheridan turning great performances. David Gordon Green does a great job in the direction. Uh, the screenplay by Gary Hawkins, which this is his only feature-length film. I don't even do shorts and documentaries aside mm-hmm. from this. Um, it's just a great movie all round. Um, so I think, you know, if it's not clear from the conversation, we really think you should see it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is, this is something on the podcast that... Um, I forget to do all the time, mostly because it's a meaningless rating system, but I give this a golden cage. Um, it's like the points in whose line is it anyway. They don't matter. They mean nothing, but it gets a golden cage from me. Um, but with that all said, you know, as we come to the end here, um, MJ Smith, once again, thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, of course. Thank you for uh, having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, for the sake of the listeners, where can we find you on the social medias? Yeah, uh, at MJSmith891 on Twitter. Um, that's that's me. Uh, my current uh, profile name is a, uh, a tribute to Willy's Wonderland, actually. It's uh, <laughs> MJ, a chicken soup for the soul company, because it was presented by Screen Media, a chicken soup for the soul entertainment company. Um, <laughs> I knew I'd seen it somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I am 50% of the podcast Let's Jaws for a Minute, which is a minute by minute or thereabouts breakdown of uh, my favorite film of all time and my co-host Sarah's favorite film of all time, Jaws. And we we're about 24 episodes in um, at this point. And yeah, we're just past the half hour mark <laughs> of, <laughs> of the film. So we got another hour and a half left in this thing. So come join us, won't you? fantastic uh, i mean i'll be there for let's jaws for a minute hope you join them too uh but again wrapping up here mj smith once again thank you so much for your time joining me on the journey to true cage nirvana we will see you in the next one thank you for listening if you have been we'll see you next week until then keep on keep on caging it's all you have to do Bye bye <laughs>